Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Uh, This conversation today, and I'm speaking to you just uh, hours before the State of the Union address, um, is going to be about war. I can't think of a more important subject, uh, and it's something that has been on my mind and on on many of our minds a lot uh, in the early weeks of 2020, because uh, just after the new year, we came dangerously close to a major war with Iran because President Trump took the highly unusual uh, decision to assassinate a high-ranking Iranian government official. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about those events and some of the reactions to that here in the Congress. But I have two terrific guests for this conversation, starting with uh, Ernie Bergman, who is actually going to be my guest tonight in the gallery at the State of the Union Address. Ernie is the president of the Marin chapter of the Vietnam Veterans of America. He is himself a Vietnam veteran, enlisted in the Navy in 1966, spent three years serving our country. We're grateful for that. He was deployed in the Mekong Delta. So he saw a lot of the reality of war up close and personal. He's gone on to have a successful business career and uh, lives in San Rafael and has been very active as an advocate uh, for our veterans uh, for decades. And we're grateful to have you here, Ernie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, Also joined by Erica Fine. And uh, Erica is the advocacy director at an organization called Win Without War. Uh, which is a, an NGO that engages policymakers and the media and grassroots partners to advance a progressive foreign policy and national security agenda. So she is an expert on the legal and the policy implications of this subject of war. And Erica, we're grateful to have you on my podcast as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Erica, I'd like to start with you, and I wonder if you could educate us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of war powers. Mm -hmm. I know that our framers were very concerned about making sure that the exclusive authority for when this country goes to war, where we go to war, was vested in the United States Congress and not with the Commander-in-Chief. They love to separate power all over different parts of the government for checks and balances, but why was it so important to them that war-making authority be with the Congress and not with the Commander-in-Chief? Right. Um, That's a really great question. And it really boils down to a very simple answer, which is um, the Congress is the institution that is most, the closest to the American people. And therefore, um, they didn't want the executive branch to be able to have this authority without consulting with the American people. And with Congress being the branch of government that is elected by the people, um, the decision is not supposed to be easy. And so, um, it, you know, you needed consensus among members of Congress. Uh, and, and so Article 1 of the Constitution gives um, the power to Congress. So the ultimate safeguard against going to an ill-considered rash war. Um, but we went to Vietnam, and Ernie here served in Vietnam, and Congress never declared war. How did that happen? 
Well, Congress got into I mean, the the um, executive branch has really gained a lot of power over the years in terms of sending um, U.S. forces into battle, and um, you know the history is um, we were sort of in similar ways to the Iraq War, we were sort of lied our way into the Vietnam War, the um, Gulf of Tonkin, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. I think it's really important to note that after the Vietnam War was uh, was over, um, as part of the uh, reforms that happened, the Congress passed the War Powers Act yeah. of 1973, which really added uh, safeguards to how the president is able to take U.S. forces into battle. So it was meant, is it fair to say, it was meant to address a lot of criticism for uh, President Johnson taking us into the Vietnam War without authorization from Congress. But at the same time, it also established some new authorities for a president to engage us in military action, maybe you might consider war, without first coming to Congress. Yeah, I think that that's somewhat... Um, the War Powers Resolution is, is a very imperfect law. Um, and so there's, it's sort of been interpreted that the president has uh, 60 days where the president, the you know executive branch is essentially authorized to go to war. But in fact, what it really says is the president has 60 days to come to Congress. And if Congress does not approve of forces, then those forces must be withdrawn. And so that they're not really authorized for, uh, for those 60 days. It's sort of a middle uh, a middle ground that that definitely needs to be fixed. Uh, I yes. think the, it should the the law should be amended to make that much more clear. And we're going to come back to that yes. in just a minute. But Ernie, let me first jump over to you, and I'm hoping that you can share with the listeners of my podcast um, what you experienced on your very first day in Vietnam when you actually saw the brutal reality of war up close and and realized it, it maybe was not. Uh, some romanticized thing that you thought you had signed up for. Well, I, I think a lot of people who sign up for war do look at it as being kind of a romantic situation, <clears throat> especially in the 1960s. At that point in time, there was no organized anti-war effort because uh, my generation, I was born in 1948, <clears throat> we all expected going to the service as being part of the deal. And it wasn't if, it was really when. And when I was approaching my graduating uh, year in high school, I realized I wasn't ready to go to college. So I thought, well, what's my alternatives? Well, either going to college, which I chose not to do, <clears throat> or getting drafted and going to Vietnam. I decided to enlist in the Navy because not necessarily to avoid Vietnam. I didn't join the service to go to war. I joined to see the world. Plus, my father had been to sea for 53 years, and he went up to me and said, son, you go into the Navy. So I went to the Navy. Now, in growing up in just a suburb of America, Mill Valley, California, yep. <clears throat> I experienced all the things kids do. Little League, paper routes, um, you know, Boy Scouts, Cup Scouts, all that. I grew up as being a wholesome kid, you know, patriotic, religious, the whole thing. When I went to service, I didn't expect that to change. Um, I went through boot camp. I uh, got went to an A school, basically a training thing that would allow me to learn my job that was designated. And then I was shipped overseas. Now, my, my unit was difficult to get to. It was engaged by the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army. So I was put in transit, basically a, a temporary assignment until you get to your unit. And because I was a big guy and because I was a very low rank, they put me on a work party. So my very first day in Vietnam was April 4th, 1967. 
and I was as naive as they come from. I was just a kid from Mill Valley. I, but because I was a big guy and strong, <clears throat> I was put to be a stretcher barrier at the Denang Hospital, at the triage center. Now the triage center is where they decide who lives and who dies. And it still happens today, but during the war in military, it's even more serious because if somebody is injured so badly that the doctors or nurses can't determine they can be saved, they just film full morphine, put them at a corner, let them die. And then they take the guys, oh, this guy's pretty bad, but we think we can take care of him. So they take him to the operating room right away, and then all the guys that were just marginally hurt, uh, they get put in the corner and they have to wait their turn. Well, that day, my very first day in Vietnam, I saw lines of stretchers of poor Marines, kids, <clears throat> sitting there, and they were either already dead, or they were dying, or they were trying to die. Wow. I saw kids my age look like me. Um, that were torn up, that were missing arms, missing legs, had damage to their bodies. I, I remember one guy particularly that I was carrying it on a stretcher, and he had pock marks head to toe. And all I could think of is he was on the wrong side of a Claymore mine, which is a, which is a mine that you, you face toward the enemy. Yeah. It has probably a thousand BBs in it, and it blows up and it like destroys the whole body. And I was looking at this guy and going, holy cow. And as we got closer to the um, Close to the tree out center, he started shaking and it scared the hell out of me. So I put him down, I called the nurse over. And while I was looking in his eyes, he died right there. Wow. And all these visions and all these vivid images are as vivid now, uh, 53 years later, as they were that day that I was there April 4th, when I was 18 years old. Yeah. And that right away has is, is made me take a whole different look on what war is all about and what the results of war are and what the impact war has. So a few weeks ago, uh, we came pretty close to having a hot war with Iran. We may not still be, we still may not be out of the woods uh, when it comes to um, some of the implications of what may have been set in motion uh, earlier this year. Uh, what are some of your concerns, Erica, as uh, an advocate for progressive anti-war foreign policy uh, in terms of what we saw unfold uh, with that yeah. incident? Yeah, I, well, we are definitely not out of the woods yet. And I think the reason for that is because President Trump has done everything he can to um, increase tensions and increase hostilities with Iran, right? So he let, he um, uh, withdrew the United States from the <clears throat> nuclear agreement that was working, that was keeping a lid on Iran's nuclear program. He designated um, uh, Iranian um, forces a terrorist organization, and um, you know he has been incredibly hostile to Iran. He hired uh, notorious Iran war hawk uh, John Bolton before he, you know, then they they parted ways, right? Um, all of that, you know, what we saw an escalation over the summer. Um, where we were, we were apparently, you know, ten minutes away from a decision to strike Iran. Then, and the only thing that changed uh, that calculation was apparently um, Trump watched Tucker Carlson on yeah. TV, and um, you know, then this assassination that happened in the beginning of this year. Um, was apparently also was reportedly um, being planned for months. And so, you know, this, I, I, it's clear to me that Iran, um, is going to strike back 
And, you know, they already did in Iraq, uh, I think, disputed as to whether the um, they meant to avoid casualties or not. But I don't think that we're out of the woods because there is no real off-ramp to de-escalate tensions, except that Congress has stepped in and said, we don't want to go to war with Iran. And they are being the voice of the American people. Or or at least one house of Congress so far. Uh, My house, the people's house, uh, has invoked this war powers authority that uh, you were talking about previously. Um, do you want to talk about the mechanics of what that means and, and what would happen next if we uh, can persuade the Senate to take like action? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing that happened the week after uh, the assassination was uh, the House had a resolution on the floor to withdraw U.S. forces from hostilities um, the resolu- in or against Iran. Um, the resolution was a tool that was provided for by the War Powers Resolution of 1973. And um, that was, it it, it passed the House, and um, now it's sort of languishing in the Senate. The House, I think it's important to note, also voted last week on two other measures that would throw up roadblocks to war with Iran. Yeah, so Um, let's just break those down. Sure. Um, uh, This action against Iran was justified in part by this administration claiming that the original 2002 authorization for military force that was intended for Saddam Hussein and and Iraq based on bogus information about weapons of mass destruction at that time, that that still provides legal authority for them to potentially start a war with Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, The resolution that we passed last week, thankfully, led by Barbara Lee, uh, said, no, you don't. We're repealing that stale old authorization for military force. How significant is that? It's it's hugely important. It takes away con- um, a legal authority that this administration has claimed provides some sort of um, justification for the attack. I mean, that's, as you said, I think completely bogus. But um, what it does is it, it takes away uh, this rationale that um, there's some sort of uh, congressionally provided um, law that you know allows for this to happen. Okay. So, the, so you know, I think take that that was important. And I think the other thing that happened last week was also um, an important step: the Kana resolution. The, the no, war, no war with Iran resolution. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I was glad to support both of those, and yet all of this is kind of piled up in the Senate. What's right. going on there? Does it? Are you doing any advocacy over we, in the Senate? Uh, we are. You know, actually, my understanding is that soon after the impeachment shenanigans are done, um, Senator Kane's War Powers Resolution yeah. is going to be voted on. Which and I think is bipartisan. Yeah, he apparently has um, four Republicans that are going to vote for it, and they only need 51 votes to pass, and so you know we're really grateful. I we understand that it, it's likely to pass. Different resolution than the one that the House passed, and so it will be coming back to the House. Okay. Uh, the House will then uh, get a chance to vote yet again to say no to war with Iran, um, and then it'll go to Trump's desk. Yes, where it will be vetoed, as we all know, and some people look at that and say, well, why bother? Uh, but you could say the same thing about an awful lot of things we do around here. Do you think there's an important value in sending this 
bicameral message potentially to the president, even if he vetoes it? Absolutely. I mean, I think this goes back to the first question that you asked about Congress's powers, Congress's constitutional powers. And what, you know, what that is, is Congress reclaiming its authority to say, we are actually the decision makers in terms of whether, where, when we send U.S. troops into battle. Um, And it's it's an additional step that Trump has to take. And it it will change his decision-making calculus. I I personally, just real quick, I personally believe that had the House not taken such quick action and had there not been a lot of grassroots activism um, around the country after the Soleimani assassination, we we would be in a very different place now and potentially some sort of additional conflict with Iran. Ernie, I want to bring you into this now because, um, you know, there's a saying that the first casualty of war is the truth. And we've already experienced in this uh, episode involving Iran a false justification for the targeting of Soleimani. We still haven't seen this intelligence that supposedly showed four U.S. embassies an imminent threat of... uh, of harm to Americans and American facilities. Uh, I have been in the classified briefings and I can't speak about what we were told, but I can tell you we were not shown intelligence to back that up. And increasingly it looks like this was just uh, an extrapolation. This was just something they decided to do. But we were also told the night of that strike against our troops in Iraq that no one was hurt. And fast forward a few weeks and we come to find that Maybe a couple dozen or more of our troops appear to have very severe uh, head injuries that required them to be shipped out of country to Langdul um, Hospital in Germany. So I want to ask you uh, how you feel when you see a president of the United States say things like, oh, they just have headaches and lie to the American people and say no one was hurt when he, he knows better. Well, I, I really think that the people in charge making those decisions are going to do whatever they have to do, regardless of what it is, in order to get their way. And that's unfortunate. Um, one thing that really bothers me right now is that <clears throat> the president we have right now has no knowledge of war, no concept of war, and especially has no fear of war. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to say that um, all veterans are anti-war. I think most of the people who have experienced combat are. But the fact is, most veterans, including myself, are very pro-military. And you might think, well, that's hypocritical. Why do you say that? Well, the fact is, is that realistically, in my view, as long as we're living in a war where somebody wants to shoot at you, you better damn well prepared to shoot back. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you go to war. I really believe in a strong military, but I think war needs to absolutely be the last option. Mm-hmm. And you need to do anything you can before you take that step in order to get into it. It appears that the current president uh, has no concept of any of that. And, well, and that's a problem for me. Yeah, and he said some <clears throat> things um, that would really validate your opinion there. For example, um, of Senator John McCain, he famously said, he's not a war hero. Um, He was captured. I like people who weren't captured. That seems to reveal a deep, deep ignorance about what serving in the military and serving in war is really all about, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, unfortunately, less than 1% of America right now, American citizens, are, are participating in the military right now. I think you and I have discussed in the past, I'm all for a mandatory service time, not a draft, because that means you may have a chance to get out of it. I want everybody to go. I don't think that'll ever pass. But 
People need to understand what it is to serve. It would change the calculus. Uh, it, it, would, it would, and it would give people a whole different perspective as to what it really means to serve. Not go to war. I mean, if you look at the Vietnam War, of the 2.9 million people that actually can call themselves Vietnam veterans, less than 20% ever pulled a trigger. Yeah. You know, the, the military is a big team, and most of it's a service team, a support team. Now, if everything goes to hell, we all shoot back. But the fact is, during an operation, you really have a couple of people up front and you have about 10, 15 people behind them making sure they're allowed, they could do their job. And so that's how that works. Wh wh why do you think it's so dangerous that we have a president who talks so casually about these things? For example, um, I remember a couple of years ago, he was talking to the widow of a fallen soldier doing one of these condolence calls that presidents do. And uh, it was reported that he said that the soldier must have known what he signed up for, um, as if to gloss over the loss yeah. and, and the reality of it. Um, in, in other situations, when he was threatened military action against Iran, he said that it would be very fast, very hard, very easy if we decided we needed to strike Iran. Um, this seems like a, a, a casual, almost laissez-faire attitude toward the realities that you saw in Vietnam. It reminds me of when, in 1992, when the first Gulf War was declared, and going in and taking care of Kuwait and all that, and they were announcing, well, we expect 10,000 casualties. Yeah. And at that point in time, I was, <clears throat> nobody ever knew I was even a veteran, but I saw that on TV and I'm going, I started yelling at the TV, don't you know, why haven't you learned, you can't do that. It's, that's not an acceptable answer. Um, like I said, the people who are, who are, you know, making these decisions, who are, are analyzing what the war is all about, or what it, what the eventual impact of it would be, really don't feel what it's all about. They don't know what it's all about. And I mean, you know, like I said, if somebody shoots at you, better be prepared to shoot back. But yeah. the fact is, is that uh, that's what bothers me so much is we are in the brink of someone declaring. Uh, you know, something, uh, you know, an offensive uh, response that probably is not going to be necessary. And I'm sure the Iranians don't want to have war. Yeah. They may, you know, wave the sword and all that, rattle the saber, but that's all politics. Erica, from a policy perspective, um, what, what kind of damage does it do to our credibility and to uh, our foreign policy when we have a president who talks about blowing people off the face of the earth and uh, bombing cultural sites and other things that we've never heard a president uh, yeah. talk in these kind of terms. Yeah, the, this this president has done enormous damage to U.S. standing in the world um, when he talks so cavalierly about um, going to war and you know and actually and having taken really. Uh, praise dictators and um, undermined our ability to really, you know, provide accountability for human rights, cozying up to MBS after the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, all of these things really add up. And if he um, loses the election in, uh, in 2020, that doesn't necessarily mean that the damage is just going to go away. And I think, you know, I just, if I could add, I would, I think it's important to note that, you know, Trump didn't create all the, the, the problems that we have today. He's just exacerbated them. Um, the U.S. has spent $6.4 trillion since 9-11 waging wars around the globe. Um, hundreds of thousands of civilians have been killed in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. 
Um, 7,000 U.S. forces have, been, have died since 9-11, and you know, tens of thousands have been wounded in battle. And these costs really add up. Um, we, you know, and they're they're completely hidden from the U.S. public. So I'm 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 totally for raising the um, costs that you know that we that that it takes to go to war. And I think you know we should be thinking about um, tax, you know, raising taxes and making sure that the American people understand that these wars are not being paid for right now, and they're just being added to the credit card. Yeah. What, what do you think, Ernie, uh, about our president's suggestion recently that um, we would essentially hire out our American military to the Saudis? Uh, the cheapening very, of, uh, of our national defense in that way. That's very offensive to me. Very offensive. Another quote that I, of the many that I really am bothered by is when Trump says, all those guys with PTSD, they just can't handle it. Yeah. Mm. That just drives me nuts. Yeah. You know, and again, that's a that's again an indication of the naivete and the total um, uh, separation that he has from any realities of war. Yeah. So on the one hand, we do have this president that is it doesn't seem to understand the reality of the toys he thinks he's playing with as mm-hmm. commander in chief, and yet um, <clears throat> he veers wildly and and suddenly. Um, away from war sometimes, right. uh, you know, almost on a, on a whim, uh, saying we're pulling out of uh, Syria, pulling out of Afghanistan, then uh, undoing that mm-hmm. and saying, no, we're not, mm-hmm. um, doing a, a strike uh, because of chemical weapon strikes in, in Syria, and then ignoring another chemical, you know, there's, there's no constancy. It is so erratic. Um, to talk about what that means for um, like, you know, you're advocating for a rational, progressive mm-hmm. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. We've got a loose cannon rolling around the deck, um, depending on what kind of mood he's in. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think he really pulled a fast one on the American people and claim, and somehow there's this notion that he's this, and he wants to end endless wars. Um, we haven't seen that at all throughout his presidency. And, um, you know, I, I hope that people who believe that really take that back. Um, I, think he has, I think he has many supporters who think he's really trying to do that. But right. do you and see it, any evidence of it? I, I do not. And um, he's made the way that the U.S. wages war more deadly. Um, in the last two years, we've had more um, airstrikes in Afghanistan than any of the other years that um, we've been fighting that war. And um, the, the withdrawal from Syria was actually just a redeployment to another part of the country. Um, the problem is that these wars are really hidden from the public because of the ways in which we've been waging war. And so um, there, you know, it's, he's able to sort of claim these things without actually providing the evidence. And that's why when Without War exists, we want to make sure that we're um, exposing this to the American people. Yeah. And we're grateful for members of Congress like you who want to talk about it. Well, thank you. Ernie, uh, in a few minutes, you and I are going to go down to the floor of the Capitol and we are going to hear the State of the Union address <clears throat> from President Trump. Um, the rules do not allow us to interrupt the president and ask questions. But assume, Darn. For, <laughs> assume for a minute that, that you had the ability to say, excuse me, Mr. President, and ask him a question with the, the cameras rolling and the whole world watching. What would it be? Well, the first thing that popped into my mind was tell the truth. If you are totally um, innocent of all the things, 
just tell the truth. You know, I'm sure he's been told that many times before and that's been all over, but I think that seems to be the, one of the big stumbling blocks as he keeps on, you know, pro proclaiming his innocence. He's got a pretty tortured relationship with the truth. Um, Erica, I'm going to give you the same incredible prerogative to interrupt the president and ask him a question in the middle of the State of Union. What would it be? It would be, when are you going to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan? Uh, that was something that he um, has said that he's going to do. And then just, you know, the there was a, um, a tentative agreement on the table that his U.S. envoy um, to Afghanistan took a year to um, carefully, painstakingly negotiate. And then within, you know, 24 hours, Trump went and blew that whole thing up. Well, he got very excited about having the Taliban at Camp David. Right. Maybe got a little ahead of himself. On the anniversary of 9-11. Yeah, maybe hadn't thought that one quite through. Right. But, but then I, had to cover for his own incompetence and basically blew up the progress that had been made. Is that what happened? Well, yeah, that, exactly. I mean, I, he, he, you know, if he's such a tough guy, if he's such a great deal maker, you know, let's get that deal back on the table and let's get our U.S. forces out. Okay. Uh, any other closing thoughts on this I'd subject? Like to, yeah, I'd right. like to mention one thing. As a veteran, I can only represent myself in yeah. my own opinion. Um, for veterans, everybody has a different war, everybody has a different experience, and they all have their own opinions. And a lot of people are kind of thinking like me. A lot of them don't. So I don't want any of your listeners to, to think that, you know, I represent all veterans. Right. I represent one and one train of thought. Um, but I think that my my a perspective on things has a lot of legitimacy to it based on my own experiences. You, you want to talk about uh, veterans policy? I mean, we uh, deal constantly with challenges at the, the VA. Uh, there was a little bit of drama today. I understand that one of the top officials was summarily fired with no explanation. There's constant attempts to privatize the VA. Um, tell me a little about your perspective on our well, veterans policy. First of all, I think all veterans do not want the VA to be privatized. That would just screw it up even more. The VA's care is very, very good. And all the individuals that work there are wonderful, wonderful people. Problem with the VA is it's underfunded and overworked. You know, and what they need to do is they need to fill all those slots that are yeah. not filled. And they need to get the right people in there. But the fact is, is that most, I mean, certain some veterans may, maybe had a bad experience. I know I use the VA myself and I've done, I've met nobody, I mean, no one except absolutely wonderful, dedicated, very yeah. skilled people. Now, the care is excellent, but do you think some of uh, those vacancies and that starving in the VA happening at the same time as we've created this Veterans Choice Program where you can begin to outsource to private providers, yeah. well, do you think it's by design? Do you think it's a way to starve the beast of the VA and begin the process of privatization? I don't know. I, I, I've used Choice in the past. Choice was started in 19, uh, sorry, 2015. Yeah. Um, part of the problem, what I've heard of problem, is that paying the bills, VA paying to the outside doctors is a little slow. Yeah. And so sometimes outside doctors are not accepting VA patients to their choice program. But, but for some people who live two hours away from the VA hospital, it's a good program. Yeah, no, would, it is. I've got a lot of rural vets that, that uh, it, it's just hard for them yeah. to get all the way into Fort Miley to get their care. You're covering Northern California, especially yeah. Sonoma. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are in the sticks up there. They just don't have the access or the ability to get to a VA hospital. My hope is that we can make sure that that 
private provider access is additive to VA care mm-hmm. and doesn't replace, isn't seen as a replacement. Yeah. I know another question that comes up recently was there are four different medical uh, situations that are being held up as a relation to Agent Orange, and I know people would love to see that go through too, but that's been postponed also. And there's a lot of people out there that, you know, are challenged by these uh, different conditions, and yet there's nowhere to go. Erica, uh, other thoughts on war before mm-hmm. we uh, head down to listen to the, uh, the great leader give his uh, State of the Union speech? <laughs> Well, just uh, one thing on on the um, on veterans is we must take care of our veterans, and um, that is, that care is going to continue, and the costs are going to grow. And there's absolutely we must continue to fund yeah. adequately fund the the veteran the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Right? That's part of the but real cost of war, it's right? Exactly. And that if, you're, is, if you're yes. not keeping faith with veterans, then once again, you're, you're, you're cheapening, you're hiding the real, the true cost of war. Right. And privatization is not the answer. The you know One of the ways to get the cost of the VA down eventually is to stop sending our men and women into these um, really illegitimate and futile uh, wars overseas. All right. Well, we're going to... Wrap up on that. Now, let me thank both of you for joining my podcast. And uh, Ernie, I'm looking forward to escorting you down to the House floor now. It'll be an interesting experience. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cup with Jared Huffman.